Hello everyone, I am Mirta Hurtado Rivas. No VIPs or rock stars, just simple people sharing their life stories to trigger discussions around important topics or simply to inspire us to embrace challenges ourselves. Welcome to Leaderching. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Leaderching. My guest today is Graham Hood. He is a partner at Smart and Bigger in Canada. Hi, Graham. How are you? Hi, Mirtha. I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for being my guest today. Um, I know it's kind of, you know, we're all very busy, especially still during pandemic and so on. So I really appreciate you taking the time. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So, Graham, let's dive directly into it. You know, um, I think our listeners are very eager to hear about you. And my first question is, um, what is your first memory about, you know, a career aspiration or a profession that you had during your childhood? Well, I guess before law, there was sports and I was very much interested in ice hockey anymore but I had played since I could walk and sleep I from time to time but it was something that I shot with um, and I had played from perhaps early early grade school um, all the way up till high school uh, when school got in the way and, and my priorities changed and I'd play twice a week um, whenever I could and it was a lot of fun and I enjoyed it very much. Perhaps I had a future in the NHL but um, it took my dad to let me know that uh, well you need a God-given <laughs> talent and, and I just didn't have that I could skate, I could pass, I could shoot, um, but I wasn't. And so unfortunately that was, that was, I guess, career aspiration um, that, well, didn't make it much further than that, an aspiration. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah. So I, I'm not a very kind of, you know, I wasn't a sport, sports girl at all. I, I, I came to sports very, very late. Um, and I wonder when I when I children around me or even my peers at the time when when I was going to school and I had a, a peer of mine who wanted to become a professional hockey player, um, it, it was quite tough actually. Uh, you know, a lot of training. So it was fun, kind of yes, when they were kind of you know having a, a game or so. But um, my understanding was that it was quite kind of for a child to to do it like often during the week in addition to school. How did you go about that? Was it also tough for you or did you just see only the upsides of it? So I probably didn't commit as much time to the sport as I needed to in order to progress. I played in what's called a house league. So it's a neighborhood league. It's, it's open to anyone who wishes to register. Um, but it's not for your elite level athletes, your elite level hockey players. I have friends who, you know, took it a step further and 
they would play almost every night, you know, travel to tournaments and, and it was a a full-time job, 14. So I knew pretty early on that it, it wasn't in the cards and that's fine. Um, it was just one of my first loves. Well, if, if I could turn this into a, a profession, well, that would be just great. Excellent. Unfortunately, so, it didn't work out that way. <laughs> well, I'm happy you got to enjoy it. And I think, you know, it's great to, anyhow to do um, kind of, you know, sports. And especially when you're in a group, so team sports are nice, right? Because you get to, you learn so many things about sports that, that are helpful for for life, I believe. So that was your first aspiration. Did you immediately kind of turn towards law or was there something in between? And, you know, what happened from law to IP? After hockey, I turned to acting and that was my real focus. Wow. High school and into university as well. I was in a lot of plays, a lot of school that was taking up more and more of my time. And I went to an arts high school where you specialize in a particular field of art. I was in theater. I had friends in dance, uh, others in visual art, um, music as well. Um, And that's actually where I met my wife who was specializing in music theater at the time. We didn't date at that time. We dated later on in life, but uh, the arts has always been a, a real interest of mine and a shared interest of ours. And once my NHL dreams were dashed, I turned <laughs> to acting and thought, you know, perhaps I may have something here. I was in a lot of shows and for a time in high school, I had an age television work, um, after high school, maybe go on university, study theater, and and from there perhaps join a theater and and study theater and, and practice stage acting uh, as a career. That would have been um, realized into university, looking around. Queens, where I studied theater, I had many friends and colleagues who were exceptionally good. And they were having trouble sort of breaking into the professional theater scene. And uh, I thought to myself, gosh, if, if they're having a hard time, have as talented as they were. And so that was a you could say. And with that, I looked elsewhere. And it was it was then in university that I turned to law, both of my parents are lawyers. Law (laughs) was always um, it was dinner table conversation. And so it was almost second nature to me. I didn't know what area I wanted to practice necessarily, um, but it felt and it seemed like 
solid alternative to a career in by its very nature is is not necessarily so um it's it touch and go uh so i think the familiarity and the um the consent of of a leap really at that stage Wow, that's impressive. So you, it sounds so mature of you, right, to look around and compare yourself to others and then kind of say, well, maybe you know what, maybe this is really not for me because I can see others already struggling. It, it seems like, to me, really sincerely, it seems like very kind of like, you know, a mature decision, like taking um, like very much, you know, normally by already kind of a not only grown but you know adult person having had already some experiences how did you manage to you know to get this distance from you know from being in it and loving it and having this first inspiration into really kind of taking a step back and looking around you and and, and then you know making this call it, it took um the first two years of university i knew i be a, a stage actor and it was only you know when i leagues who were perhaps in later years maybe they were in in third year going on fourth or fourth year graduating and you know you touch base with them and they're just struggling trying to make ends meet and notwithstanding their immense talent, they were having a hard time. And that was a bit of a shock to me. So with that, I, I had to refocus, turn my mind elsewhere. And law, I think in many ways is a lot like acting. <laughs> um, you're, you're given a script, you need to know your lines. And certainly in the courtroom, there is performative elements um, to a hearing or a trial. It's, you know, important being able to speak comfortably in front of one person, 10 people, 100 people. So experience with acting has certainly helped my career in law. Absolutely. It has afforded me the be comfortable before a great number of people speaking stepping out on stage tomorrow to talk to an audience about anything um, and and public speaking is a, a number one fear among many i'm i'm very fortunate in that it's it's not one of my fears i have many other fears um, but <laughs> Uh, public speaking is not one of them. Excellent. And I couldn't agree more. I think um, sometimes we have the feeling that kind of our first passions or, you know, the time invested in something is kind of um, lost time because at that precise moment, we, we don't see how much it can help us in the future. But I went through a similar experience where I wanted to go on diplomacy and then at the end, I decided not to do so. And I always said, like, oh, my God, now I've learned all this kind of stuff that, you know, and um, 
and today it proves so so helpful right to haven't been exposed to different cultures languages and to kind of do a little bit of this kind of negotiating you know back and forth and so on which i think probably you can feel very comfortable doing because of the acting that you kind of you know were educated in i think that's uh, certainly a very good actually type of skill and a lot of people struggle with uh, public speaking and i think that's um sometimes even you know even in-house in a company when you're not capable of presenting well your ideas um you can be dismissed um because people think that you are not capable which is actually not always true but we we are a very kind of um you know visual and you know a society that kind of picks on things like self-assurance composure and all of that and so um, I'm pretty sure that having that kind of, you know, scale already helped you a lot. But let me turn now to something different because, okay, oh, obviously today you're not acting, uh, <laughs> you know, outside of the courtroom at, at least. Uh, but I was wondering, so you are today, you are, I, can, I think we can say successful. Your partner is Martin Bigger, one of the most recognized, you know, with uh, law firm with the highest reputation in Canada and, and even in, at, at a global level, it's very well known. So through your kind of, you know, career, even maybe your studies, you know, um, I'm sure you came across um, different types of leaders, managers. Um, and uh, today, obviously, you are also coaching, mentoring, leading, supporting others. If you were to describe what, what you think is kind of key elements or characteristics of a manager, of a good manager, possibly, yeah. of a good leader, what would those be? I think good leaders can come in many different And one trait I find is shared by many great leaders is Accessibility, ability, being open, available to those that you're leading is, I think, critically important. It's to associate leadership, you know, upper management, uh, the, what have you from those trenches, so to speak. But if you can establish a, a line of communication that, that remains from the very outset, I think it, it goes, um, many firms will talk about having open door policies when they recruit their summer students and their associates. And, and it's no different. We have a very flat structure we, our students and our associates to, you know, seek out the work they to knock on doors, ask questions. And it's policies like that, that I think take the fear or hesitation out of being led, so to speak, because that your leader, whether it's your manager, whether it's your manager's manager, what have you, is available to you and willing to listen to you and, you know, willing to invite you in to their office and, and 
sit you down for a, a conversation. Um, open line of communication because otherwise um, unfamiliar, um, they can become alienating and can help anyone. That's a very good point. Um, I'm thinking now during the pandemic with, with all of us kind of sitting at home and being involved in so many, you know, virtual calls, do you think that the pandemic has helped to be, to become more available or do you think it has kind of taken away time from our associates to be able to reach us? Because I, I think it's kind of, you know, it can be two things. I was wondering how you experienced it. So I think people have certainly become more accessible. Um, we now treat Zoom calls like chat rooms, at least, and, and among, our, among our clients. Um, However, I do take your point at the same time, you know, you're no longer in the office from your associates. And that's a challenge because value in face-to-face -face interaction. And that's something that we're trying to reintegrate into our daily practice at the firm. Um, I, I think in addition to you know, always being accessible. I think they also really humanize people. Um, more contact in the last two years than I have, you know, in the, the preceding uh, six years of my practice. And it's because we've had to adapt and it's because people are now open to and they're prepared to, you know, open their uh, to let you peek into their to their kitchen counter, you know, so to speak. <laughs> and and when when you see someone at home, it it I think it strengthens um, that humanistic bond um, between between the two, and it it goes a long way to making client relationships that much more sticky. Yes, I like the idea. So for me, it was also a kind of, I felt like it was a kind of democratization of people because, you know, normally the C-suite is always sitting in an airplane or is in a, or is in a kind of a leadership meeting sometimes, at least here in Switzerland, some nice place in the mountains. Um, and so actually getting to people sometimes can be difficult just because they are, they were kind of, you know, physically not where you are. Yeah. With Zoom calls and everything, my feeling was like it was really difficult to escape because we knew everyone is at home and everyone is blocked at home, locked at home. And mm -hmm. so for me, it was like, okay, once of a sudden we're almost all equal because, you know, even the highest ranking person in the organization was at home. And um, some, you know, some people could had the leisure of going to the office because they were the only ones going. So they didn't have to, and, and maybe some countries didn't have the same type of measures than others, but, but still you had the feeling kind of, it brought us all kind of more to the same level. You mentioned also 
Um, and I think to me, that's always a hot topic, communication, right? Because availability is one thing. And I agree that um, it's very important to create that atmosphere where people will trust you and come with questions, even when they think they should know the answer because they are, you know, experienced or are should have learned this somewhere. Um, so I fully agree that this kind of atmosphere of trust where, where you can exchange ideas and, you know, propose things even with taking the risk of not always giving the right answer is extremely important. How do you go about, you know, the communication when, when you think availability? Do you think that there is specific characteristics as to about how to communicate with associates or, you know, even with your peers that kind of denote what a good leader could be? I, I think there are many ways to communicate and I think you have to know your audience, so to speak, or know with whom you're communicating because they may have preferences. They may prefer to communicate by email. They may like face-to-face conversation. I think What's important is that in addition to being accessible, you're also adaptable, that you can, you can pivot, adjust well, to whomever it is you're speaking with. Um, I know that that's something in communicating with, with clients, that's something that I've noticed mm -hmm. a, a shift in um, over time. I find at least, you know, with some clients gone are the days of the, you know, 10 page opinion, um, yes. rather the, uh, the client is looking for, for something more concise, more to the point, um, and, and more informal really. And, and that can take form of abbreviated email or a phone call, um, so I think it's important to be flexible and adaptable. I know when I, uh, Mark Evans, my partner, was my coach, is still very uh, mentor, and he said, perhaps on day one, you know, my door is always open. There, to knock, to call whenever you need to. And that hasn't changed in eight, nine years of practice. And I think that you establish those ground rules, so to speak, at a, um, to, to make everyone comfortable. And I feel comfortable with him and working with our trademarks team of those ground rules. We're all on a first name basis. We all know each other very well. And helps immensely um, when you have that comfort level. There are no dumb questions. And you'd be amazed at what you could learn from asking what you consider to be a dumb question because it may not to someone else and it could nevertheless open the door to a, a deeper conversation. Um, 
that can lead to a, a valuable exchange of ideas. So you've touched on two really important points that within leadership we've tried to kind of convey or develop or start simply a conversation about. The first one is I think that you haven't touched upon it directly, but in order for these ground rules to be, you know, accepted and to feel like they are really meant, right? Because we also know organizations where we have very good ground rules, but then the implementation of it gets totally lost. And so for me, what you're describing is really an atmosphere where people can be authentic. They can be their true selves and, you know, and at the same time be respectful of others and really collaborate, you know, really with each other in a way that, as you said, brings them the result, you know, to the next level, or at least it creates a room for conversation and openness that might not, might not exist if you don't have that type of attitude. But I believe that that's the true leader, right? It's the one that not only says that I'm available, says there is no dumb questions, but that really means it yeah. and acts on it, right? Someone that's really walking the talk. And the other thing that you kind of indicated with your answer to my prior question was that there's, you know, with respect to being adaptable, um, and you also with respect to your statement regarding, you know, what I consider to be a dumb question might be actually an interesting question to someone else, kind of builds the bridge to the last topic I wanted to talk to you about, which is really the one of diversity, right? Because it's only when we allow for all type of opinions and perspectives to come to the table to talk about a specific topic that we really get that diversity of thinking. Because often enough, as you know, in old times, it was more about having kind of a corporate thinking. So, you know, you fell into place and in line with a specific thinking because that was the trend, it was expected. You know, a lot of us were brought up that way. Like, you know, if you work for Toyota, your thinking is going to be this. If you work for IBM, your thinking is going to be that. If you work for Apple, then you're going to be this and this, right? Our days, and, and, and you know, let me know how, how you perceive this. My feeling is, even though kind of we may have a natural inclination to feel more attracted to a certain type of people that resembles us, right, kind of, uh, if you're an open person, you might hang out more with also the ones who are more kind of extrovert instead of with someone who's introvert. But the more I see kind of the evolution of the complex legal matters that we are dealing with, my feeling is I really need to go kind of beyond that natural kind of, you know, automatism that comes where I reach out to those that I think will support my thinking and will support, you know, my, yeah, my proposal and instead I need to go to those that probably may have a different perspective view and even sometimes may be critical of what I'm going to propose mm -hmm. what's your ex experience with that you know and because you mentioned it before so I'm thinking you may have you know already experiences and have some ideas about it so the one thing that because I've been one to ask so-called dumb questions at the firm. And I don't think it's a bad thing. And the one thing that always strikes me about any answers to so-called dumb questions is the response, 
I was thinking the same thing or <laughs> I had the same question because chances are you're not the only one, you know, to be unsure of this particular thing or, or not know about this particular area of law. And at the end of the day, we're here to help and serve our clients. So any questions that we may have, um, you know, are not necessarily reflective of, or, or don't know, or how, how best to serve our clients. Um, at the end of the day, we're here to deliver an excellent quality product to our clients. And if that means my asking a few so-called dumb, my fellow partners, well, so be it. Um, because the, the end goal is, is the admirable one. And I think King at a firm like Smart and Bigger, you have access to a great many viewpoints. Each of us comes to the table with different experiences, with different areas and levels of expertise and tapping into that, whether it's, you know, with a, or an email or, you know, walking down the hall to, to knock on the door is invaluable. Um, and some, you know, you, you, you have to do, um, because it's there, it's, it's at your fingertips and you would, uh, it would be a disservice to, to not tap into that. I think we often under the value that we each bring to the, <laughs> I am, I'm, a few lawyers at our firm that don't, don't have a science background. Um, my, my, you know, in theater, as you now know, <laughs> and English. So I didn't go to engineering school. I didn't go to medical school. I didn't spend my days uh, toiling away in a lab. Um, but my experience has value. And sooner we can communicate that to everyone um, at our organization or at any organization that no matter who you are, where you are in a past life and, and what you're doing in a particular organization, you value because no one else has that experience. Excellent point. And I think it really leads nicely to, you know, to the, to the other side of the medal of diversity, which is really, how do you come to the inclusion, right? And I think what you just kind of depicted is exactly that, is, is that if you convey the message that irrespective of what you learned before, the fact that you're part of the team now is actually already what allows you to have an opinion and what allows you to speak up and to contribute to a topic. And we didn't touch uh, you know, on the gender kind of topic, but what I hear from you is that you really value the fact and you try to convey really the message to everyone strongly that irrespective of what you did before or, or even because of what you did before, you know, it's not because someone was 
uh, in your case, in acting that you cannot contribute to something where you believe actually the scientific background is needed. Actually, very often in my experience, because I didn't have the scientific background either, and as you can imagine, when I was working for Novartis, that was kind of difficult, right? Because it's a bit of a challenge. Um, but very often, I was just the one asking a question that would then shed the light on the fact that it was probably not clear enough or it was kind of not digestible enough for a non kind of, you know, IP professional with a patent background to understand. And so for business purposes, for communication purposes, for advocacy work, you want to make sure that your statements, for instance, in this specific area are not only understood by the highly skilled, um, you know, people with a scientific background, but, and so sometimes being the one who hasn't that required and so much appreciated skill set is actually the one that just serves as kind of the benchmark, okay, um, is this really something that's going to hit, you know, the nail on the head or are we just going yes. just totally beside it? Yes. Great point. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to have all this expertise, all this know-how, but if you can't communicate to a client or opposing counsel or a court, it's it good. One of the best lessons I from the professor who taught us legal writing was, you know, if you read this and you don't understand it, go back and read it again. And if you still don't understand it, that's not necessarily your fault. The author has some fault in that as well. And I do agree it's it's very important to be able to communicate clearly and concisely before law school i thought you know good clean legal writing was legalese and latin terms yes. and <laughs> you know things only trained experienced lawyers really understand but i learned pretty quickly that's not the case clear you want to be able to convey your message to someone with with no legal training your neighbor for example your niece nephew if you can do that i think you can more easily more persuasively make your case excellent graham so in order to close our conversation i would like to know from you if you could go back in time, when you were in your 20s, what would you recommend yourself? Like, what would be your recommendation? Looking back and, and saying, you know, Graham, that's what you should be doing or stop doing this. What, what would it be? I think I would tell myself to have more fun. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in high school and in university and in law school, studying, studying very, very. And I don't regret that, but a bit more time outside the library, I think I would have enjoyed my time 
a bit more. I certainly would have had a more, a fuller experience, I guess you could say. Have fun. I think that's an important lesson, not only at age 20, but at age 30, 40, 50, and so on. Excellent. I think that's uh, that's very good advice. Um, I think I was struggling. I had too much fun, I think, during, <laughs> during high school and my first year of university until I failed my exams for the first time in my life. And then that was the wake-up call. I said, okay, apparently the party is over, so now I need to really spend more time in the library. But I would agree well, with I you. I think you landed um, on your feet. Yes, thanks God. Thanks God. But but I think you're right, you know, irrespective of the age, I think um, fun whilst working is important, but fun outside of work is also equally important to kind of, you know, have what we call today a work-life balance, right? Um, but um, I think it's just to have some fulfillment. And as you nicely put it, to just have a fuller life, you know, fuller experience. Yes. So thank you so much, Graham. This has been very, very interesting because, um, yeah, there are so many things I didn't know. So um, this was really cool because I learned so many new things about you. Thanks so much for being so open and sharing your insights about the topics of, of interest of leading. And I really look forward to seeing you face to face soon. Fingers crossed. Me too. Absolutely. Merita, it, it, to see you. Thank you so much for, for having me. And uh, I look forward to again meeting him. So thank you, everyone. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and give you a thumbs up. Bye, everyone. I hope you liked this episode of Leadership in English. Don't forget to give us a thumbs up on your respective platform and subscribe to our podcast. See you soon.